Jody Vanson for Mike this week. We've seen our governments at all levels try to help the little guy or gal, the small business, but still there are many walking that very fine line of survival. Restaurants in particular, the struggle is very, very real. So to try and figure out where the shortcomings might be and how we could shore those up, joining us on the line is the president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian Tostenson is with us. Hi, Ian. Good morning, Jody. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And it was actually from your BC RFA Twitter that I found uh, this particular article that sort of was the jumping off point for me. I found it fascinating uh, with Finance Minister Carol James uh, referencing how, you know, weekly, um, every actually every two weeks, uh, she has a call with the federal finance minister. And every two weeks, she and a number of other ministers give updates and raise similar issues time and again. Can you kind of walk us through what the biggest issues are with regard to restaurants and the Canada Emergency Commercial Rent Assistance Program? I know. I'm glad you said that. So we'll call it the rent Mm -hmm. program. Um, I'm trying to keep this really simple because it's really complicated. I was just talking to my good friend at PCI who do a lot of real estate in Vancouver. And um, so let's take a stab at this. Businesses, if they have a certain threshold, so less than $50,000 a month in rent or $20 million in aggregate of sales of their company are eligible for essentially what amounts to a 75% subsidy towards the rent. So the land, so the, the tenant ends up, the commercial tenant ends up paying 25% and the other 75% is shared between the landlord and the federal government and provincial government. It sounds really uh, easy, but it isn't because the application to reget the funds has to go through the landlord, and that's where the, the sticking point is. Some landlords don't want to do it. Some landlords are offshore and don't care, uh, and they don't, they're not tied into this, so it makes no difference. And so it frustrates the tenants, and it also frustrates the uh, property managers. So that's where the bottleneck is, Jody, and it's a great program because it's it's so needed right now. Uh, the, the Prime Minister, um, bless his soul, he's now extended the wage subsidy to December, which is really going to help. But if we could get the rent relief, and so the stats show through Restaurants Canada that only 50% of landlords are willing to uh, participate with the rent relief program, which means that there's a whole bunch of small businesses out there that are being left in the weeds. Um, the solution appears to be something along the lines of uh, allowing the actual tenant to make the application. And if the tenant makes the application, it'll force the landlords to, to, to participate. And the last thing I'll say before I turn it back, Jody, is that, um, you know, PCI's view, and they do a lot of commercial leasing in Vancouver, which downtown Vancouver is a mess right now. There's no one there is that they'd rather have compassion and empathy and take 75 cents on the dollar as a, as a landlord than nothing, because there's not a lot of people lined up in commercial real estate to take over these empty buildings. And so, you know, it's not about big, bad landlords in most cases. It's, there's a a whole bunch of things in that. And, you know, landlords, they have their, um, their challenges and their debt and their obligations to the bank. But I think what they said was, it's probably time that we started to talk about those landlords that are being great and helping all of us collectively by providing relief uh, as opposed to ones that are not. So it's a bit messy. 
It is a bit messy and what I'm hearing from you, and, and I'm glad that you pointed out that there are some great people working very, very hard to keep their tenants in place and happy because you don't want the business that uh, you're renting to, the space to, to go under because finding someone to replace them is next to impossible uh, in, yep. in our current economic state. So there is incentive there. But as you said, like somewhere, as we are learning through these programs, the Canada Emergency Commercial Rent Assistant Program, the rent program that we're calling it, um, how how difficult it is to sort of jump through the red tape and the hoops and how to qualify and whatnot. And the stats really speak to that. Only 4,600 BC small businesses have qualified under this program yep. right now. And and that that's 2.3% of the roughly 200,000 BC small businesses. I mean, we really truly are built on our small businesses. So either incentivizing the landlord or giving a direct path from the business owner who is uh, is looking for that rent relief is is there a way to be more vocal to our it seems like our provincial government is is hearing loud and clear is this a problem that we can't get to the federal government yeah the uh, minister of finance who pointed out she's on it uh carol james uh the prime or the prime minister the uh, the premier's on it minister of small business mongel is on it so they seem to have sort of deaf ears in on ottawa and whether it's because they're afraid of the potential cost but it's so necessary. Now, the, I was going to say that the business has to show a 70% uh, drop in revenues, which is a bit of a problem too, right? So uh, some right, businesses right. Have, aren't showing that, um, but there's nowhere near profitability because as long as they are being restrained from a distancing point of view, they can't operate at any efficiency. So that's why this needs to be extended. But, um, yeah, I just think you're right. I think it... I think if we put the um, uh, the but sort of the application process and, and gave the uh, uh, tenants some uh, power and make it simple because people, well, no, I don't think your listeners do, but, you know, some of the stuff is so complicated. The business owner is just trying to run his business, get his staff, get food, trying to figure out two meters between tables, and suddenly he's going to sit down for two hours and figure out this labyrinth of complexity in terms of getting some rent relief, which is going to be really critical. To, to have that cash flow, if they could get this program done properly, to get them through the, the, uh, the lean midwinter months. And we're going to have a higher survival rate in this industry if we do that. But if we don't do something, uh, I think the big crash in our industry is going to start happening around, you know, end of September, beginning of October. You know what? We're with Ian Tostenson, the president of the BC Restaurant Association. And, and you know what, Ian? Every time you and I talk, we do talk about the struggles, but we also talk, talk about solutions. And yeah. simplification here is certainly a solution. And, and would, it, would it really cost more for the federal government to make it one button like they did with the CERB? Here's a button to press. Here's a button that you press. You say, here's your address where your business is. We know the landlord that is associated with that because everybody's got to file everything nonstop. Anybody who has even the tiniest of businesses knows the pains of, of, the, of the due diligence and the, and the paperwork that is involved, even if you don't have employees, good Lord, like get to, get to payroll tax, and that's a whole nother level uh, of twisting your mind around. So it, could it be that it just needs to be simplified down to a place where it is a, a one-click and find some relief as opposed to having many hoops to jump through before you're allowed to press that button? Yeah, so if your starting point is, you know, the majority of businesses are great people and they provide great employment. How to make this happen? Then you're mm. absolutely right. It should happen that way. And that's exactly what, what it is. And the BC government, to their, and I'm big on them, 
they, they've done this. They've done this on liquor policy, on patio policy, where, you know, yeah. as you and I talked about a month ago, we get patios now in 48 hours. It would take years to get these patio approvals because they got out of the way. They trusted business to do the right thing. And business, right. by and large, will do the right thing. So that, that the simplification is critical. And, the, and who does the application is critical. And the other thing they need to do is as that business becomes stronger and ramps up its revenues and the restrictions to operate reduces, then they can reduce the benefit. It doesn't have to be, you know, that amount of 75% subsidy forever, but at least give them some breathing room, which they don't have right now. And as, as you pointed out, the uh, actual applicant or the number of restaurants or businesses, small businesses in BC, which is the backbone, that have, that have qualified and or applied for this, or, or pardon me, the landlords applied for it. That's a very small percentage. We need to get that higher. We need to get that higher. And perhaps the way to do that is to put the onus on not just the, the landlord, because I, I know personally a couple of, of small business owners who literally cannot even get their landlords on the phone because they are so against being involved in this program for whatever their reason might be. As you said, there are many landlords who are also like trying to string together and hold together with, with duct tape and chewing gum, uh, their, uh, financial structure during a pandemic. So this isn't just everybody's bad, but there's always going to be people right Ian, who are going to game the system and to try and, and make it foolproof to that is, is next to impossible. Well, if you're not paying attention to the marketplace, you'd be really concerned about losing tennis because, you know, you do not need an empty uh, tenant uh, or, or building next door to Jody's restaurant that doesn't serve you well. No. You want to create mass, you want to create people. So interesting that uh, what I did find out this morning is that the strongest part of this whole market in terms of uh, rent has been residential. Most owners yeah. are seeing really solid, responsible people paying their rent and doing the right thing. So the mess is in commercial rent. And um, there we go. I don't know. Well, we're, I think we got we're leaving it at good news. Yeah, we're we leaving are. it at good news. I'm up against the clock, Ian, as always. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Have a it. good show, Jody. Jody Vance in for Mike this week. You know, COVID-19 has been particularly hard on teenagers. Imagine, imagine, take yourself back to when you were a teen. You're, you're a special being, right? You got boundless energy. You're social. You want to be active. You want to hang with your friends. Kids finding their way to adulthood, so important. And yet here we are, schools closed, circles tightened to family only, now just gradually opening back up. These are some defining days and certainly days for learning and growth. You can, you can use this time in this new normal and talk it through with positivity. And you know why I know that? Because of people like my next guest. I don't know anybody more inspired. Uh, words of inspiration roll from his tongue. He is a captain. You know him. You love him. Formerly the captain of the Whitecaps FC, but captain to so many. The one and only Jay Demerit is on the line. Hi, Jay. <laughs> Good morning, Jody. Happy Monday to you. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, as the mother of a 12-year-old, I can imagine how your rise and shine camps mean so much to so many, particularly now during this time of COVID-19. Your camps open, uh, the first of, of, of the series uh, opens a little bit differently this year. Can you give us sort of a, a sort of a, a Cole's notes on, on what it'll look like this year? Yeah, well, well, Captain's Camps is a teenage program. 12, 12 plus is, is the ages we do. We mix the ages. So the first week, this starting this week, actually already on Tuesday, is uh, is 12 to 14. So then we alternate weeks 15 to 18 uh, throughout the summer. So um, your Captain's Camps are based on 
uh, a leadership program this year. Generally, we are two programs for a soccer program. Of course, that's what I used to play. So that was the pilot program of five years ago. Two years ago, we brought in the music program. So we have DJ camps. So the kids come up and uh, all of the skills are generally taught by coaches or pros in that thing. So any of the, the listeners know about master class, this is kind of the same idea. So the pros coach, and then the kids will get a holistic version of, of learning through that coach. But then once a day, we have a mentor that's professional at something else that comes up to the property. And, and, and so we do a lesson in their life, too. So it's, it's meant to think that kids generally, they, they, get, they get put into their single-lane track. I'm a soccer player. I'm a musician. I'm an artist. And that's all they get to do now at 12, 13, 14, 15. If you're not part of the art program, it's what you got to do all day. And you can, if you're going to be that famous artist, you can't go play basketball or you can't go to your friend's house or can't do any of that thing. So what Captain's Camps does is that opens up that playing field a little bit wider. Uh, we try to introduce, uh, you know, teams to all sorts of people from professionals in sports to professionals in music, arts, uh, you know, again, by CEOs of companies, technological professionals from EA Sports, et cetera, et cetera. So every day the kids get a wide variety of what high performing people are doing in this world and make sure that we're creating those mindsets in those kids from the start. And in years gone by, uh, Rise and Shine camp, Captain's Camps, Jay, have been uh, really cool. I mean, I've seen your property. When you say come up, you're talking about Pemberton and, and staying right, in. Yeah. And they're almost, they're almost like yurts. They're, they're really cool setups. Um, and, and how that, like, it's, it's more than just, you know, your typical, I, I shouldn't say just typical, because camp's great no matter what. Kids love camp. But this year it has to be sort of reimagined, right? That's right, yeah, because normally you, the kids are staying in those beautiful safari tents. It's a bit of a glamping idea. Again, we're not trying to put the kids in the Shangri-La, but, uh, you know, we're getting them in an environment like a camp out, you know, that kind of thing, again, which is amazing for kids, just full stop. You know, if we can get them out, mm-hmm. of their, out in the woods and, 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 and get them looking up instead of looking down. <laughs> if, yeah, if you, right. You know what I mean? Um, uh-huh. So that, that, that's also kind of part, of part of the goal. But, again, this year, because – uh, you know, again, in soccer, you can't, I can't go throw a ball out there and say, go play. Cause if kids, you know, you kids can't run into each other, there's no team play. And then BC cancel overnight programs this year too. So, you know, it, in, a, in a time where uh, we're all uncertain uh, for me, where the goal is to do something. So, so we've changed it to this year to a day camp and to all teams. So now we're not going to do uh, sport focused or music focused. We're doing fully general leadership focused. So any team is welcome. Uh, if you can get up to Pemberton, and uh, um, so and we got this this week's mentors are a CEO in our tech program. We have a um, a former a former Ireland international Yale Yale soccer product who's going to come up and talk to the kids about recruitment. She runs a college soccer recruitment thing, but recruitment generally is how do I get a job? How do I get somebody to pick me? So we're going to change mm-hmm. that into like how do kids learn how to get picked? How do kids learn how to create a platform for themselves so people can see them? So that, 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 that includes jobs and things like that. So, again, we're taking sports and we're kind of flipping the script a little bit this year and saying, listen, it's not just about sports or it's not just about music. It's about how do we create a holistic environment, you teen, so you can get better at life. And, that, and that's basically what we do at Captain's Camps through our mentorship program, through our leadership programs and making sure we're surrounding these kids with high performance people. And what's the schedule? Is it like 10 to 6? Yeah, it's a 10 to 6. So the mornings, we've changed the day into, into three blocks. The mornings are going to be called Mindset Mornings. Those are taken by uh, our music uh, foundation and fundraiser founder, uh, but she's a half of a DJ group called Average Gypsy. Her name is Danny, uh, Danny Wilson. But Danny is also uh, a master in sports psychology, and she's Team BC's mental sports performance coach. So she's coming up, but she's going to be the resident up there this year. So she's going to take the mornings with me, and we'll call them mindset mornings. So the mornings will be based generally on mindset exercises, visualization, how to prepare for big moments, 
things that have to do with the mindset. So that's what the mornings will be based on. From there, we'll move into a lunch. So with, with a smaller group, because we only have 20 kids at a time up there, that's a, that's where I like to keep it. I don't like to get huge groups because we kind of lose that full connection. Um, yeah. So we're, this year, we're going to split the kids into groups. We're going to have more of an interactive lunch. Very The, the theme this year is going to be simple, easy meals that any teen should learn before they leave their house. So again, like spaghetti, spaghetti with meat sauce and Caesar salad. Simple, mm-hmm. easy, cheap. Uh, but again, do kids know how to make that? If they do, great. Then we can we can continue to turn that screw. But if not, this is how long you take to boil. This is what a noodle looks like when it should when it's done. You know, sim- simple ideas. Yeah. But um, you know, that's the kind of thing that we're going to do this year for the nutrition training. So that's during lunch. Uh, then the mentor comes for the afternoon. So that the, the afternoon is based on whichever mentor comes. Uh, again, this year we got CEOs, athletes, musicians. You name it. Each day, each each afternoon will be, will be based on their story, and then we try to practice whatever it is that mentor preaches. So, if it's a fashion person, we'll we'll do a fashion lesson. If it's a designer, we'll design something. If it's a, a musician, we'll do a karaoke contest. Or if it's a, you know, it's a a TV host for a, a radio host, we'll do like some hosting exercise where the kids get to put get to go through that media gauntlet of what it's like to speak on the spot or you know talk in front of I'm other looking people. Looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm exactly, looking forward exactly. to that. So, yeah. <laughs> so you know we always so try included, to walk a mile in the shoe. So that, that and yeah, then, so then included that in the this, end of the day. Right, and it, how much is it per day? It's a hundred bucks, a hundred bucks for the day. Uh, and again, you, you get you get a lunch included. You get a little swag bag, and then you get to meet some pretty awesome people. A lot of people are, are booking the three day blocks with families are in town and they want to get up to Worcester for a couple of days. Some families are camping out in local campgrounds. That's what BC Parks had recommended that we do: is say, you know, if, if your families can get up there. Um, as long as you can drop your kid off in the morning every day, <laughs> um, you know I can take them. But unfortunately, they can't. They, they can't stay over this year. I can't keep them overnight, unfortunately. But uh, um, some families are coming up and, and doing things like that. You know, they're going to enjoy a week, a couple, three days in Worcester because it's just Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays every day. Um, so it's the middle of that week block. And um, yeah. yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get a bunch of kids up. We have a bunch of kids, and again, this is maybe to mention too. Uh, through our fundraisers all year, through the Rise and Shine Foundation, we raise money to send kids from from sea to sky to camp for free. So there are lots of free spots still available. Uh, those are still on the website. You just you just apply and and, and say uh, why why you deserve to come. And, and the the key word is deserving. It's not just financial aid. There's a million reasons why kids don't come. It's not just because they don't have any money. It's uh, there's yeah. lots of reasons. So so for for us, it's it's deserving is the key. If you if you are have or know a deserving kid, or if you are a deserving kid that's 12 plus, hop onto the website and, and we'll get you up there this summer. And there's some logistics. Uh, we are working with some local groups like East End Boys Club and things like that that are tra- providing transportation for some kids this summer. So there are ways we can do it. It's just about trying to get creative and making sure we as as people and facilitators can uh, can help get some kids up there. We got a lot. We got kids as far as Nanaimo. We got four First Nation kids coming from a group that I've worked with the Whitecaps many years ago in Nanaimo, Hope and Health. They're sending kids this year. So again. We're just trying to do the best we can with what we got. You know, we know it's not a uh, totally. summer. We know, uh, you know, this isn't something that uh, hopefully is normal for our future. But, you know, again, we do the best with what we can. And, and right now, that uh, let's get some kids up this summer and, and, and get them outside, get them inspired. Again, it's very COVID-friendly when everything's outside. We don't go inside for anything. All meals, talks, everything is outside. So it's it's really safe um, as far as, the, you know, the COVID concerns are, are, are that are there and, and uh, again, we'll just uh, we'll, we'll continue to work on the program and uh, and keep giving kids in the sea of sky some opportunity to, to to get to know themselves. Rising to the occasion, you got to end this off, Jay Demerit, with the website. You keep mentioning, go to the website, go to the website. What's the website? <laughs> it's an easy one: www.riseandtheletter.shine.camp. 
riseandshine.camp. If you think you're deserving, that's all you got to write. Just to just fill out the application. You could go gratis if you want to support Jay and his initiative. $100 a day. The three-day camps uh, start tomorrow. Then again, uh, next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and the following week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. This is how Jay Demerit rolls. Inspo and leadership. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate Hi, it, Jay. Jody. We'll see you, got, we'll see you, you out too, there in the man. summer, too. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. And you know what's nothing new? The pushback on racialized sports team names. As a longtime sportscaster, I can tell you that the debates on names is almost an annual affair. And rarely, if ever, are there any meaningful results. There's rarely any meaningful change until today. So to, to discuss uh, what will be remembered as a landmark day in the NFL, no doubt, we welcome Rob Williams, the uh, sports editor from the Daily Hive. Hi, Rob. Hey, Jody. How are you? I'm doing really well. This is quite a day for uh, sports, isn't it? It, it is. I'm, get, I'm getting ready to head to Rogers Arena in not too long uh, for the first time in months. So uh, with the start of training camp today uh, and, of course, this, this news out of the NFL, it's pretty big. Okay, I want to talk to you about the training camp as well, but let's start with the fact that <laughs> Dan Snyder, the owner of the Washington Redskins, just learned that lesson to never say never, huh? <laughs> Exactly. I mean, he, he, mm. he yeah, famous, famously for years has, has been uh, defiant on uh, changing the name, um, which, of course, is, you know, I, I think of all of the sports team names that are that are named after First Nations people. Uh, I think Washington's name was uh, widely viewed as the most offensive. Right. It, it's, it's just a no it doubt. A, um, um, you know, it's a, a, essentially a racial slur. Um, and, and yeah, the Dan Snyder had, um, had been defiant, uh, you know, forever. <laughs> and, uh, I think a lot of people thought that he, that, um, you know, he, he'd have to sell the team or, or die before the, uh, before the team would ever change its name. It's really quite something looking at the team history. I was actually filling in for Linda Steele uh, 10 days ago about when this news started to sort of buzz around the Washington Redskins uh, legitimately, when when people started going, wow, this could actually happen. And Amir Ali looked deeper into the history of the Washington Redskins. And, and there was a time when, I mean, they were f- literally forced to draft a black player. Like there are, there are some serious racial issues uh, in the history of the Washington Redskins um, in, a, in a much broader sense. It's really quite the story and that this team was initially named while in Boston, uh, not in Washington. So sort of a, a, a broader issue, obviously. But retiring the name immediately, that's the announcement today, retiring it immediately and due to, well, I guess money talking, right, Rob? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, that's the thing about this is it's um, the optics. The optics. I mean, the result is great, but the optics for for why the team is changing. Uh, it, you know, picked now to to decide that they were going to change their name uh, certainly aren't great. Um, it's it's only um, you know, it, 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 it basically it happened this month where when all when many of their their big name sponsors, including FedEx, uh, essentially said that uh, they were not going to you know associate themselves with the team and, until the name was changed. So, uh, you think about it, like all the years of defiance, and then it took eleven days from when yeah. FedEx issued a statement 
saying that they wanted the team name changed and they immediately changed the name. Um, but yeah, many, many other sponsors, um, you know, stepped up and, you know, I'm, uh, you know, this is, this is another, um, you know, uh, positive thing to come from the, the Black Lives Matter movement, I, you know, where, I, where people are just deciding uh, no more, right? No more um, yeah. are, are we going to, uh, to put up with um, things that are, you know, with, with racism on, on this kind of a level. And it's that bystander, systemic racism sort of piece of the puzzle that is coming into play in earnest here. For me, the big move, I think when what sparked the conversation on the Linda Steele show was when Nike pulled all of the Washington Redskins merchandise, period, gone. And that was like, well, that's going to see uh, as a, a definite effect. And certainly it was very immediate. It, it shows the power of of. Uh, the the consumer as well because if we don't purchase those things we can make change and that that's a big I, I think piece of this and and because there's more pushback from those companies who would be associated with racial slurs or racial uh, um, racially charged teams team names like there's just no longer that sort of well it's always been that way you know those days are gone. yeah yeah. I thought it was pretty telling that even in their even in their their statement, which would have been well crafted by a team of PR professionals, uh, the last and lawyers, uh, the last sentence yeah. ends with with the fact that they're going to pick a new uh, a new name and, and design that that's going to you know uh, you know uh, I'll just read it here enhance the yeah, standing of our proud tradition, rich franchise, and inspire, and they list. Sponsors first, then fans, then community for the next hundred years. I mean, that just kind of says it all, doesn't it? It kind of does. Hey, you know what? We only got like 30 seconds here, but I want to know, how are you going to Rogers Arena for uh, Canucks training camp? How's that social distancing work? Are you wearing a, like a hazmat suit? Are you going to be a cohort? <laughs> what, what's, what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're taking every precaution. Uh, so media members are allowed in. We're not going to, we're going to be still doing um, interviews via Zoom. Uh, so we won't be coming into contact with any players uh, the media will be in the upper bowl. We we're going to have assigned seats, space meters apart, and and wearing um, face masks. So yeah, they're they're. Um, it sounds like they're going to be doing every uh, every precaution to to ensure everyone's safety. Well, that is great news. Uh, you're going to need to report back to us. I'd love to hear how that goes. So maybe we'll call on you again tomorrow, Rob Williams. Thank you for this. Anytime. Thanks. Jody Vance in for Mike this week, and we're talking about the United States and COVID-19 and the politics surrounding it, and we do so by connecting with Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent and producer. Hey, Reggie. Happy Monday. Indeed. Well, it's definitely a chaotic Monday as we uh, continue to get the influx of of numbers, COVID-19 numbers from the United States going from uh, devastating to, to somewhat catastrophic on this Monday. Yeah, I mean, look, Florida uh, continues to lead the pack when we're looking at uh, at numbers across the United States. Record-breaking over the weekend, more than 15,000, uh, which is the highest that any state has posted to date since the pandemic began, even outdoing uh, the highest numbers from New York several months ago. And even today, Florida posting another 12,000-plus cases on the heels of Disney World opening up over the weekend uh, with new fears that that's going to lead to a further increase in cases just weeks down the road. It just is mind-boggling for so many of us here in Canada to think about Disney World opening in Florida. 
Yeah, and look, this comes as the governor has repeatedly refused to take any kind of responsibility for issuing that green light for Florida businesses to reopen. The state was one of the last to shut down. It was one of the first uh, to reopen. They really didn't pay attention to that gated criteria from the CDC. And while Disney World is working to you know ensure people are wearing masks and they're not allowing as many people to come in as possible, it really kind of goes against what's happening in the southern part of the state in Miami, where they're actively working to shut businesses down again and in and. Uh, put a curfew in place uh you know and it's this kind of mixed messaging that's coming just from one state uh that really shows how fragile and and uh and how how the crisis is really being enhanced across the country it's so disjointed i also read about um the houston mayor who is now trying to implement a stay-at-home order because hospitals are filling then you look at new york who finally uh were able to uh get to that 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 point where there there were no deaths like that's the celebratory note now in new york when when nobody dies yeah and look the, the death toll really has become a another politicized part of this pandemic uh because you've had the president lauding the fact that there are now fewer deaths happening across the country uh while not taking into account the fact that there are now surging cases and deaths uh you know as everyone has been told over and over again are a uh, a factor that come into play weeks down the road so those there mm. is a chance that deaths could continue to pop up uh you know as we look towards the end of July and the beginning of August which is something that is going to come back to bite the Trump administration uh, and the words that they've been using. It's just really quite something, too. And speaking of Donald Trump, you were mentioning uh, by Twitter, we were going back and forth there, that you were just watching a press briefing. Is there anything new there? Well, I mean, new in the sense that they are continuing to pat themselves on the back for their handling of the coronavirus situation, uh, but also notable in the fact that uh, the press secretary was defending uh, the kind of language that was being used against Dr. Anthony Fauci over the weekend uh, when some, you know, essentially what are akin to opposition research notes were handed out anonymously to uh, the media from the White House, dictating all the things that Anthony Fauci said at the beginning of this pandemic that they're now holding against him him. Uh, but she, you know, pr- the press secretary noted that while Fauci did make some mistakes, she said that, you know, the notion that there is a Fauci versus president thing going on couldn't be further from the truth, despite the fact that you actively have people inside the White House and on the task force trying to actively discredit Dr. Anthony Fauci. It just seems like gaslighting from the White House press briefing room. It just seems so so upside down right now because we're hearing that 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 within the White House, Reggie, correct me if I'm wrong here, but people are referring to Dr. Anthony Fauci, one of the top infectious disease experts, if not in the world, certainly in the United States, as Dr. Gloom and blaming him for not having all the correct details on a novel coronavirus, a virus that no scientist had even seen before the beginning of 2020. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, where some health experts in the United States are trying to put their foot down. You know, we were speaking with one a, a couple of hours ago here, uh, and, and she had said, you know, look, this was a virus that nobody had any experience with. Uh, so obviously the information that you work with at the beginning is based on the data that you're being provided. And then you shift the, uh, the messaging as the data starts to move. It's, it's simply why, you know, doctors, uh, in medicine, it's called a practice, and it's called a practice because it is not an exact science. Uh, and and Dr. Fauci's words from the beginning are now being held against him by the White House to try and discredit him and make the president look like he's doing a better job. But polling simply doesn't show it because there are now uh, a majority of the country who have faith 
in someone like Dr. Fauci, whereas the president, you know, a quarter of the country, which is still bizarre, a quarter of the country has faith in him when it comes to medical messaging. That is just unbelievable. Mind you, I do have the trolls who hit me up 10, 15 times a day uh, on my work email or on my Twitter DMs, as I'm, I'm certain you do as well, who really do legitimately believe in their own minds that this is all a hoax and and a political strategy by the radical left and uh, yet we are hearing these stories reggie about that that denier that young man a young man who thought that covid19 was a hoax who uh, then contracted the virus and died three days later yeah, this is this this is something that's happening across the country now. And you know, I get the exact same messages to my Twitter account saying that you know, I, I you know, I, this is a hoax. But you know, it's also worth remembering here that the people that say it's a hoax, a hoax, oftentimes don't back it up with anything other than their own words. They don't provide links. They don't give anything to read. So you know, you you brush it off as it is. But it's a scary situation with that student who died in hospital after going to one of those COVID parties that are now popping up across the country. There's also a, a leading uh, political person from Florida who is in critical condition in hospital and this is somebody uh who contracted covid and was 100 percent against wearing a mask when uh you know they were being told that that is something that can save your life these are the realities that are now being presented to these americans who have treated this virus uh without any kind of respect why do you think it is reggie you're living in washington dc you are covering uh, american politics you're covering this this outbreak why do you think a mask is causing such an uproar and 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 the freedoms to not wear a mask being such a a rant by some in the u.s solely because this is America where the government doesn't have that kind of control over the states you know oftentimes like we see in Canada where you know uh, where parliament will make a decision and it just kind of floods across the country state and individual liberties in the United States are really baked into the constitution uh, and for yeah. the government to try and tell somebody to do something uh, you know like wear a mask really does kind of put people uh, on edge and it gets people's backs up and especially when you have a president who has had a pretty solid 30% base now for the last four years when he says something whether or not he's providing a platform to a baseless claim or he is you know using social media to retweet uh, you know someone like Chuck Woolery there are people that are listening to the president and take what he says without a grain of salt and take it as kind of gospel and uh, that is what kind of starts these these further politicized events across the country it's kind of like that 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 comment that you know the government doesn't want to come and take your guns well it's the same people that will say the government then can't tell me to wear a mask. Uh, it's really quite something. You brought up Chuck Woolery. I was going through my Twitter and I'm like, why is Chuck Woolery trending on Twitter? Can you explain it to our listener who may not be on this platform? Yeah, I mean, look, if, if, if you don't know who Chuck Woolery is, he is a, you know, washed up uh, uh, game show host uh, who hosted The Love Connection, and he has really become a conservative uh, uh, backer. He, you know, he's a conservative commentator, uh, very vocal about the things that the president says and does often on the side of. Uh, and he tweeted this morning that, you know, the CDC is lying about the coronavirus. The coronavirus, you know, again, calling it essentially a hoax, saying that nobody is being truthful with Americans. And the president retweeted that again, giving that baseless claim a platform, therefore letting tens of millions of people read that information and potentially digest it and think it's real. And those are the situations that potentially could have fatal results in this country because you end up with students who then go to a COVID party and die because they contracted something that very clearly wasn't a hoax. 
I'm Jody Vance in for Mike this week, and I'm continuing in my chat with Reggie Cicchini. We check in with our Global News, Washington, D.C. correspondent and producer. And Reggie, there's a lot of discussion here in Canada about the border between the U.S. and Canada. We are just eight days away from the quote-unquote reevaluation that is looming on the deadline for keeping the U.S. border uh, closed to non-essential travel. So basically, I mean, goods and services moving back and forth across the border, but certainly not a time to uh, open things up for tourism, at least not from the perspective of Canadians. But U.S. members of Congress are pushing for otherwise. What do you know about that? Yeah, it was there was an open letter that was uh, drafted by more than two dozen uh, bipartisan uh, members uh, of Congress uh, issued to, uh, I believe, to um, Public Safety Minister Bill Blair uh, that mm-hmm. were simply asking uh, the U.S. and Canada to craft some kind of plan that would allow for, uh, you know, things to be reopened and allow for uh, traffic to start moving back and forth. Uh, there are a growing number of Americans who feel that it simply is not time to open up uh, the border. I can imagine that there are a number uh, of Canadians, you know, I grew up in a border town, and my family is very clearly not ready for the border to uh, to be reopened. Uh, you know, but you have to look at this on a on a more broad scale. If the rest of the world, notably the European Union, are not ready to allow any kind of an American to board a plane and fly into their country, it's hard to see how Canada is simply going to open up their borders and let people drive across at will. I think if you put a poll across this country right now as to whether or not the border should be reopened to tourism or to to non-essential travel of any kind, there would be a resounding keep it closed. And, and, you know, yeah, and you have to look at it in a flipped way, where if this was a situation that the United States had its numbers under control in Canada or even Mexico uh, were dealing with numbers that were, uh, you know, out of control, to say the least, uh, mm. there would be a significant push from the U.S. to ensure that people can't enter their country. Look, the U.S. was told that there were caravans coming that didn't exist, so they were ready to shut down the border and bring the military there. It's hard to see how they're simply going to open the borders up and let people flood into Canada. Interesting, though, that it was Mexico that closed that southern border recently because of COVID-19. Well, there is a fear still uh, because uh, it, it developed late in Mexico. The numbers are really uh, climbing wildly throughout a lot of parts uh, of Latin America. Uh, that there's a fear that Americans are simply just too sick and they don't want to put any kind of uh, 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 additional crises on healthcare systems, especially in countries that may not have an ability to deal with it, uh, make things even worse. Okay, so let's talk about Texas. I teased this before the break. I saw a poll where or it was, I believe it was Essie Cuphead of CNN who posted a poll uh, that Texas is now considered a swing state. Are you seeing the same poll? Yes, and it's 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 almost not uh, t- surprising right now. Think about this: in 2016, Hillary Clinton lost uh, Texas to uh, to Donald Trump by single digits, and that's the first time a Democrat had lost the state in a presidential race by just a single digit. Uh, then we had the 2018, where Beto O'Rourke was just within a couple of points of taking the Senate seat away from uh, Senator Ted Cruz. Uh, and what this shows is that there is a kind of purple haze that is forming over the state. It is quickly uh, watching its Democrat graphics shift as the population becomes uh, uh, more uh, or at least less white. Uh, There are more Latin Americans that are moving into the state. And what that's doing is drawing a bigger Democratic crowd, meaning that Texas Mm. is now in play, which is why you're seeing uh, Joe Biden uh, essentially kind of beating in early polls Donald Trump or at least coming very close to those numbers. Where else are we seeing polling shift like that? 
uh, in, in the states that Donald Trump needs to win, notably throughout the Midwest and the Rust Belt, through uh, key states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, uh, parts uh, uh, into Wisconsin as well. Uh, but down in Florida, I mean, the president, that's his home state now. He moved his residency to Florida, and he is down 48% to 42% uh, to Joe Biden. And given the fact that this crisis is impacting what is the uh, one of the oldest populations in the country, there is a serious chance here that this pandemic could be what undoes that Republican stronghold with in Florida. And when we see the gatherings that we witnessed on uh, the 4th of July long weekend, and then we do the math as we have been here in Canada, where we go two weeks out from that, that's when you see the surge. That's when you see the the incubation period sort of come to fruition. And that's when the hospitals uh, are impacted uh, the most. So we could see this shift even further in Florida in a very uh, scary way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, heading into the end of last week, Florida hospitals, uh, 41 of them were already approaching uh, capacity when it came to ICUs. And there are four hospitals right now in Florida that have bre- uh, breached capacity and are now over 100% when it comes to somebody needing uh, an intensive care bed. When you have a population uh, that is uh, older than most other states, hospital capacity becomes uh, an incredibly essential element. Uh, and if the president or the Republican governor or anybody, you know, is going to take any fall for it, uh, in an election year, that's when it's going to happen. It's really quite something to witness. And, and you know, our hearts go out to those in the United States who are doing all of the right things. I, I've talked to you about this offline many times because I've been concerned when there are protests right outside your window. And I'm like, are people wearing masks? And you see, you know, there's a lot of people doing the right thing in the United States. There are, there are a great number of people, unfortunately, who are getting mixed messages and sort of erring on the side of, well, you know, that guy's not wearing a mask. Um, so there's that 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 sort of divide, I guess, that partisan nature to this COVID-19. And we even see that in the press briefing that Twitter's going crazy right now as the press secretary is saying, science, you need to listen to it, but not politicize it. <laughs> science. Yeah, I mean, look, science is something that this administration has really kind of brushed aside for the last four years, whether it's a coronavirus, whether it has to do with climate, uh, anything that kind of undercuts what the president's, uh, you know, abilities are, particularly when it comes to special interest groups, science can get in the way. So you brush science off. But then when you realize you're three months out from an election and science may be the only thing that can guarantee you a win, it's interesting how all of a sudden science might be the thing that you need to attach yourself to. I can't believe I'm going to ask you this with just 45 seconds to go, but I'm going to. Uh, the communication of uh, Roger Stone uh, no longer going to jail. Donald Trump throws it down. The reaction has been pretty solidly against that move. It has been, uh, but this goes to show that in the United States, if you are uh, close with President Trump and you don't do anything that's going to publicly criticize either the president or people close to the president and you wind up in jail, there is a chance that you will be uh, released from jail. We saw that with Roger Stone. We saw that with Michael Flynn. On the flip side, if you're someone like Michael Cohen who goes against the president and actively works with prosecutors in a case where hush money is involved uh, and you don't stand up for the president, he's now back in jail over the weekend and the president has no intentions of issuing any kind of pardon. It is so wild to watch it happen. We're glad that we're able to unpack it with you, Reggie. Thanks for this. Thank you.